Welcome to Woven Covenant Church. It's good to see all of you here this Sunday morning. Um, real quick, two housekeeping things before we kind of launch into uh, a brief reflection and then the sermon. Uh, first of all, that box, uh, you can continue to let it make its way around. Um, there are some that didn't get to uh, partake of the goodness. <laughs> so... Uh, go ahead and send that. keep sending that box around. For those of you that haven't heard, we received a prize for our participation in the Covenant Bible Experience, and there's a box of goodies. Take, if you want to take a whole bag of chip, a whole bag of, what is that, that like low-gluten, gluten-free popcorn, if you want to eat that during the sermon, I have no problem with that. So, you know, help yourself to some of the goodies. On top of that, you know, wow, what a progressive church, right? Like, so you can text in service, too. You can eat makes it feel like a movie theater. It's not a movie theater, but still, uh, you know, you can partake of the goodies. You can also text during service, in particular today, because for the Covenant Bible experience, there are, uh, what we're talking about is scripture. This is teach, it's going to be a little bit more teaching heavy. And so you are encouraged to text your questions about the text. We're, we've been reading through Luke, Acts, and the epistles of Paul. If you have questions, you can text 832 263 3307. That's the church number. And that same number is on the bottom of your bulletin. And uh, if you're listening to the podcast, you can do this throughout the week as well. It will go directly to our church email. And um, I will, at the end of the sermon, I will attempt to address these questions through our Q&A. So once again, text your questions in to 832-263-3307, the church number. And then at the close of the sermon, we'll have a Q&A. I want to read um, a brief passage to you that's been ministering to me this week. If you could close your eyes and listen to these words from Psalm 68. We've been learning about reading big through the CBE. You've probably read so much or large chunks that you haven't had an opportunity to just read something small and to digest it. And Maybe exactly what you need is to do some slow digesting. And so listen to these words. From Psalm 68, and if it helps, with, yours, with your eyes closed. Psalm 68. There is Benjamin, the youngest, ruling them. The princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Your God has commanded your strength. Show yourself strong, O God, who have acted on our behalf. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring gifts to you. There is Benjamin the youngest ruling them. Your God has commanded your strength. Show yourself strong, O God, who have acted on our behalf because of your temple. Lord, I pray at this time that you would show that it is not by might, not by power, but by your Spirit, saith the Lord. It is by your Spirit that you break through to people's hearts, that you break through to transformation, that you do a new thing. It is by your Spirit and not by any exertion on our part. Indeed, in fact, you work through the youngest and the weakest among us. And so, Lord, we pray, command our strength today. For those of us that are going into spring break this upcoming week, I pray that you would 
replenish our strength. And in the end, show yourself strong, not by our might, not by our power, not by our exertion, but by your spirit. Show yourself strong, O God, who acts on our behalf. Thank you for this brief meditation. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we're in the Community Bible Experience, and we've been reading large chunks of Scripture from the Community Bible Experience book, from the books of the Bible, the New Testament. And uh, we've been reading through Luke and Acts. Today, I'm going to focus on the book of Acts. And to that end, if we can cue that video that shows the book of Acts, uh, a brief kind of... um, a brief description about what you've been reading and also about the life of Paul. Do we have that ready to go? Right on. Let's, let's show that video. About halfway into the book of Acts, a guy named Paul takes center stage. Earlier in the story, Paul, a.k.a. Saul, was chief persecutor of the church, but he resigned his job after an extraordinary encounter with Jesus. So now, Paul hits the road bringing the message of Jesus to Jews and non-Jews starting in the Roman province of Asia, southwestern Turkey. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, the church debates whether non-Jewish believers should be forced to observe Jewish customs as a condition of membership. Paul and others make the case for welcoming Gentiles, no strings attached, and their argument wins the day. And so, the good news about Jesus continues to spread, eventually reaching Europe for the first time. So, I don't know if any of you noticed, but you, did you see the unibrow on Paul? Uh, allegedly, his uh, uh, appearance was, was well-known uh, among the church in the early church, and they even have description of his appearance. So, I'm going to teach a little bit about the book of Acts and about the person of Paul today. Um, last week, I talked about how uh, Jesus and everything in the book of Luke and was entering towards the source, entering towards the center. And what had happened there was Jesus spread his arms out. He died on the cross, and he cleansed the source. Once the source was cleansed, if you can almost picture these outward waves going outwards and touching everything, it was like, it's almost like something you see in a movie. In fact, I talked about the matrix, how Neo enters into the source, he cleanses it, and then you see these outward waves the kingdom of God expanding. That's what we're going to see today in the book of Acts. And I'm going to talk along two halves. So if you look at the two halves, the first is the growth of the kingdom. And what we're talking about is how the kingdom has expand, it's expanding and going outwards. Secondly, I'm going to talk about the tool of the kingdom. Who is the tool? That's Paul. So the growth of the kingdom, and then secondly, the tool of the kingdom. But this first part, let's start with the growth of the kingdom. And so The kingdom, once Jesus cleanses Jerusalem and the temple, the kingdom starts expanding outwards. It begins in Jerusalem. Now, last I remember, we serve a Jewish Messiah. It's a Jewish, it's our hope. It was the Jewish hope. Jesus was Jewish. It began in Jerusalem. That's what it says in Acts chapter 1. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And then in progressively larger concentric circles, Judea, Samaria, and then to the remotest parts, all to the end, to all of the ends of the earth. And it gets bigger and it grows and it starts to grow out of control almost. And it gets to a point in Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, where they say, hang on, wait, stop. 
this is starting to get bigger than we can handle. And the movement is checked briefly. And they start having a debate. They start having some hard questions because it's out of control. It's growing and growing. In Acts chapter 15, if you can pull that passage up, the first two verses, it says this. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, saying, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, I'm going to keep this clean and classy today. Um, as I learned from Greg Mott, pastor of uh, First Baptist on 610, you know, he says, keep it clean and classy. I'm going to keep it clean and classy. If you want to know what circumcision exactly is, if you don't know, you, you can ask somebody else. Yeah. But uh, the point is this. Circumcision for them was a marker of racial identity. Now, male circumcision today is pretty widespread. It's done for health or for uh, it's done for, for different reasons than it was back then. But at that time, pretty much the only people, in fact, the only people on earth that were certain, the males that were circumcised were Jews. It was a Jewish thing. And it was done not for cleanliness purposes. If it was, that was secondary. But the primary reason why men were circumcised was to identify themselves. It was a physical marker, a physical marker that you belonged to the God of God. Judaism. It, it meant, I am a Jew. And if you wanted to become uh, Jewish, the requirement, it's called the proselyte requirement, the conversion requirement. I mean, imagine if you'd say, you know, I'd like to get baptized at Woven, and I'd say, you got to get circumcised. I mean, imagine that. But that was pretty much what was required. In order to become a Christian, the question was, did you first have to become Jewish? and therefore have to undergo, undergo, undergo the rite of circumcision. In verse 2, when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with these people, in other words, they were saying, no, you don't, no, you don't. They say, yes, you do, yes, you do. They said, no, you don't, no, you don't. And this argument ensues. Finally, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others should go up to Jerusalem to HQ, and to the, to the apostles and elders concerning this issue so that they could get together and have a powwow and decide, do we or do we not have to have our men circumcised in order to become Christian? So it's a big issue. That's the word. It says it was a, concerning this issue. It was a big dissension and debate. So what was the crisis about? Three things. If you fill in your blank, if you look in your notes, three fill in the blanks and why this was important. Why was it important for them at that period. This movement is growing, and as it's growing, why is this one issue such a big deal? Why was it the straw that broke the camel's back? Well, the first reason, and the first fill-in-the-blank, is ownership of the movement. Ownership of the movement. And what I mean by this is that for the early Christians, they were pretty much all Jews, mostly Jews. And what had happened was this, let's say, 95% Jewish movement, they did not perceive themselves as starting a new religion. If you go to Jerusalem today, it's the, it's the seat of all of the world's major religions. You have Islam, Christianity, Judaism. But at that time, 
they did not see themselves as starting a different thing, a different religion. Like we'll get incorporated with the American government and have our own 501c. They saw themselves as under Judaism. In fact, they saw themselves as a reforming movement within Judaism. So the early Christians did not see themselves as separate. They saw themselves as we are Jews. And what we're doing here is we're trying to reform fix a broken religion, and we're trying to do it through Jesus Christ. The original intention was that this would be, a, this would be Judaism. So Christianity started out like that. But as more and more non-Jews started joining the movement, the question of ownership began to come up. Who does this really belong to? Is this a Jewish thing or is this not a Jewish thing? Because last we checked, we wanted to, this to transform Judaism. But how can you transform Judaism when three out of ten people, three out of ten people are not Jews? So ownership of the movement is the first thing, but that leads to the second thing. The second crisis is the dominant culture no longer is dominant. The dominant culture no longer is dominant. Sociologists today, after studying movements of people and people movements, they have come up with a figure. It's 70, 70 percent, 70, 30. And what they've recognized with this is that once a minority population in any organization or any crowd, the minority population tips over from 29 percent into 30 percent, 30 percent of the total the then-dominant culture has to change the way it functions. What they're saying, in other words, is for us as a crowd, you know, we can eat our kimchi, we can, you know, cook our tenjang, and you probably, some of you probably have no idea what I'm saying, but it gets to a point where the minority starts to grow, and it's no longer just the minority, but it's a, it's a, it's a reckonable figure. It's a, it's a figure that hits a critical mass that we have to, we can no longer just eat our kimchi. We can no longer just do one culture thing. We have to take into account, and we have to change everything. So what's being said is when a dominant culture no longer is dominant anymore, the whole system has to change. That's what's happening at this point. That's what's happening at this point. Now, for a dominant culture, it can go one of two ways. The dominant culture can say, we should be dominant once again, and therefore we're going to leave and part ways so that that 70%, we can get it back up to 75, back to 80, back to 90, and we can once again be the culture that holds sway. Or you can do the second thing, which is to stay put and allow the diversity to change you. We can stay put and allow the difference to change us. I think the latter of the two is the better option because it's in exposure to people that are not like us. It's in changing, having to be, being forced sometimes, being forced to listen, to adjust and to change our ways that we actually grow, that we grow organizationally. So number one, it's ownership of the movement. That's the crisis. Number two, the crisis is the dominant culture no longer is dominant. Number three, the third one is necessary policy changes. Now that the dominant culture is no longer dominant, we have to change something serious. And one of those things we have to change is this question, is it necessary to get circumcised in order to be part of this movement? 
Because the Jews are saying, we have perfectly good rules for this, perfectly good rules. Why do we have to change it? Why do we have to change it? You know, this affects a lot of things. So policy changes now are on the table. And so they get together and they have a powwow. And they have what it says is a debate. A debate. And I like this because um, the literal word for debate is, uh, in the Greek, it, it translates as seeking. They got together to have a seeking. How many of you, whether it's on a leadership meeting or a work meeting or a board meeting or whatever, you sit down and you're having a seeking. You're having a seeking. What's the best way forward? What's the best way forward? Have any of you been part of a bad seeking recently? Have any of you been part of a good seeking? I've been part of both, not necessarily just in this church. Um, I sit on a number of boards, and I've seen good seekings. I've seen bad seekings. I'll tell you, I'll start with a bad. I was at an HOA meeting, an HOA board meeting. And the, our HOA, I don't know if our HOA is like yours or if it's a reflection of my neighborhood, but people were getting down and dirty. It's almost as if this is free license to just yell at each other. And uh, there was one guy that basically laid into the administrator. You know, HOA meetings, they're not typically good board meetings, not good seekings. In my experience, I could be. But I've also been part of very good meetings where there's a lot of listening and a lot of seeking, a lot of open-mindedness and flexibility and willingness to change. And I would just say, when it comes to a good seeking, a good seeking, a good board meeting, a good discernment process, the questions to ask, just think about this as you go back to work. One question to ask is, must I die on this hill? Do I have to die on this hill? And here's another question. Am I guarding truth or am I guarding pride? And I've seen debates in boards where sometimes you can almost tell this is about something more than the subject at hand. This is about something more. This is about guarding a reputation or ego or something. A, div a divisive seeking, listen to this, a divisive seeking, it can betray underlying issues in a person or in a process. A divisive seeking can betray underlying issues in a person or in a process. So, what they do is they get together and they have a seeking. And they, uh, they, they talk, they discern, different voices speak up. And finally, they decide, they decide to work together and to remain together. Now, you remember I told you they had one of two options. The Jews could have said, well, let the Greeks do their own thing. We'll part ways because we're going to continue to stay Jews. I mean, imagine if that conversation won over. Today, you and I, would I don't think there would be a single person here. Or, I won't say what I want to say, but, or we would all have been, uh, or we would all have been inculcated into the Jewish religion is what I'm trying to say. But the result that they decided was we want to stay together and we want to work through this. We want to stay together and we want to work through this. And so the dominant culture listened to the up-and-coming minority culture. And that was very important because Christianity 
would continue to spread like wildfire. And if you remember the map that I showed you with the red parts of Rome surrounding the Mediterranean Sea, that would become Christianized. Rome, Christianity would make an alliance. Some people believe not for good. Others believe for good. But whatever the case may be, in the end, Christianity would not be stoppable. It would be unstoppable. From this moment, it was like it was growing. It got checked. But then the decision that they made here allowed the movement to go even more exponential. So, the result of a good seeking. They had a good seeking in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and the result was positive. The result was positive. And it's at this part in the story where a character takes over pretty much the rest of Acts. One character, and his name is Paul. And this leads to the second heading, the tool of the kingdom. And I want to start out by telling you a story about myself, a little by way of testimony, to talk about the tool of the kingdom. Because the last person I would have expected 30 years ago to be standing up here telling people how to live their lives or trying to preach the Bible to other people, the last person I would have expected is me. The last person. Why? Because I remember when I was in my early teens and I was at church and this is in New York, right? And uh, if you talk about the neighborhood kids and the influences, I was the bad influence at church. I was the one that, uh, you know, in New York, all, the, all the, the buildings had these metal fences with spikes at the top. And every Sunday, I would risk my life by skipping out of service and hopping over the metal fence and going across the street. And I would buy comic books. I mean, that's, you know chips and all kinds of stuff and I would bring it back into, and I would bring the smaller kids with me. I would take the smaller kids with me to do this stuff and I, was, I had a filthy mouth and I had already seen too much of, that I shouldn't have seen in my years. And as I sat on the church stoop and I did this week after week, you know, it got to a point where you know, I would raise my hand during youth group and say, may I be excused to go to the bathroom? Got to a point where I didn't even raise my hand. I just got up and left. And so, you know, and the things that I experienced outside of church were even, you know, that, that's, that's the subject of another sermon. Um, things that were taught to me, things that were shown to me, the things that I did. But something happened along the way where there was something happened. It struck a note within deep in my heart when I was at a camp. Um, so I had some kind of an emotional break, some kind of an emotional meltdown. It was like, a, I've called it before, a, almost like a primal, a primal cry, a primal scream, a primal something deep within. And even then I wasn't changed. All I knew was I had some kind of an emotional experience and it wasn't like anybody forced it upon me. It was deep. Something was touched within. And then two years later, I made a decision to give my life and to follow Christ. That was the beginning. And that was my transformation. I still did not have it altogether. I still was messed up in a lot of ways. Even after that, when I gave my life to Christ, I still had um, habits and things that I couldn't stop doing or giving, uh, things that I weren't, wasn't able to give up yet. But gradually over the years, 
and the work still continues in me today. Christ has gotten a hold of my life. And the person that I am today, it's, it's not just that I do more church stuff, guys. I don't want you to think that becoming a Christian means just doing more church stuff. It, it's either you join the dark side or the light side of the force. And the dark side, just how deep that path goes and what it does to us and how it transforms us into these ugly visages, horrible things. But the more you stay in the light side, and the more you choose the light over the darkness, what happens is gradually we become more good. We become better people, more likable, easier to be around, more friendly, more noble, more pure, more beautiful, selfless. And the transformation, friends, I'm not going to say much more. I hope as your pastor, you can see it. And I hope that I can shut up, but you can still see the change in my life. I hope you can see the change in my life. And I hope for every single person sitting here, and I'm saying this very deliberately, for every single person sitting here, no matter how young or how old, I hope that the gospel will penetrate and touch you, not so that you get churchified, but so that you get touched and deeply, profoundly changed for good, and that you join the light. Let's talk about the tool of the kingdom, because that's exactly what happens to Paul. And next week, I think it's next week, I'm going to show you a painting, a picture of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. And it's a painting by Caravaggio, where you see Paul on the floor with his hands like this, and there's a horse standing above him. And it's this beautiful painting of the conversion of St. Paul. Paul converts. And when he converts, he gets, a little, he gets a little too much to handle. He gets a little too radical. And what happens immediately after conversion, listen to this, Acts chapter 9. All right, let's wrap this up. We're already getting. Acts chapter 9, it says in verse 22, Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving this Jesus is the Christ. Uh, many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with Paul, or Saul. It's not yet Paul. Whoops. Come back. Many days had elapsed, they plotted, uh, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. Cue the Mission Impossible music at this point. But their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night so they might put him, to, put him to death. His disciples took him by night and they let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. It sounds like a, I mean, this guy just converted and he's already running around like he's a secret spy agent for Jesus. It's an, ama it's an amazing transformation. Running around like a secret spy agent. And when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to dissociate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. And he was a little too radical. They were like, oh my gosh, what do we do with this guy? I've, made the, I've given you this image before. I'll do it again. It's like that scene where um, Maverick comes up to Iceman, and Iceman's all like, well, you know, um, I don't like you because, because, wait, what does he say? <laughs> You're dangerous. And he's like, that's right. Iceman, I am dangerous. And he does that, right? And that's, it's almost like this, this Maverick, 
Saul, he's too hot to handle. He's dangerous. And all the disciples are like, oh, what's just blown into town? And Barnabas comes along in verse 27. He says, I got this. I got this. And he takes hold of him. I love that. He takes hold of him. And he brings him and he puts his arm around his shoulder, kind of like Sang does sometimes. Puts his arm around your shoulder and leads you away, away from the crowd and says, okay, on with you. And Barnabas, well, I'm not saying that's what you do, Sang, but, you know, he takes him by the shoulder and Barnabas leads him and brings him to the disciples and say, this guy's legit. He's legit. But, you know, they decide in the end to send him away to Tarsus. That's what it says in verse 30. They say, praise God. Hallelujah. Go home. Go home. They send him to Tarsus. He is, after all, Saul of Tarsus. They send him home. And then it says in verse 31, after the door shut, it's, all, it's almost like, hooray! Saul walks out the door. He left the building. And the church continued enjoying peace, being built up, and going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It's not that they disliked Paul or Saul. The, the situation was they had just gone through a really intense situation with the martyrdom of Stephen. And the death of Stephen brought the heat, the popo. And everybody came in and it dispersed the church such that the church shrunk 50%. Well, I don't know exactly, but significantly. And that was the diaspora where Christians spread throughout. But it was damaging. It was hard. The church needed a spring break. They needed a respite. The last thing they needed was Saul to come along and to bring more heat. And if I think about it, if Saul was allowed to do things his way, it could have decimated the church. He was too much. He loved Jesus. I think he was real at this point. Yes, he was real. But the problem is he was just too much for the church. It did too much damage. They needed to recuperate and recover. And so... Saul gets sent to Tarsus. Later on, I mean, for the next two chapters, really, you hear nothing about him. And the two chapters that span from, from Acts uh, 9 to 11, it's pretty much, it spans about 10 years, 10 years of church history. Nothing happens. There's just one brief mention where Barnabas comes and picks up Saul and takes him to a special place called Antioch. And it's at Antioch, Saul gets discipled, he gets, uh, he gets evened out. Kind of like this week, I, you know, when I went to get my brakes done at Bennett's shop, there's a lathe that that thing turns, and uh, you put the brake on that lathe, and gradually it chisels out all of the rough, all of the undulations on the brake, and it makes it even and smooth. And it's during those 10 years, it's called Saul's silent years, We know very little about what happened or where he was, but during those 10 years at Antioch, his rough edges, the undulations, the kind of disturbances in his character begin to get smoothed out, smoothed out. And he does resurface. You know, I hope that this is your Antioch. I hope that this is a place that not only do you get hot for Jesus, but that you also become mature. And it's in those silent years, those 10 years, as Saul goes underground, he gets matured and his faith gets, it, it ripens and it grows. Last story. So Saul goes underground, sublevel, and disappears. But Peter reemerges. And Peter was the original apostle. He reemerges and it tells and it continues on talking about Peter. And just listen to this, okay? This is the last passage. 
In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. Tabitha. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity. Well, basically, she died. Tabitha dies. And they laid, her to, they laid her to rest in the upper room. She was dead. And the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, they sent and said, don't delay. Come and see us. Come, because Tabitha died. When they arrived, uh, Peter arrived, he saw all the widows, people weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Tabitha used to make while she was with them. Peter sends them all out, and he kneels down, and he prays, and he turns to Tabitha's body. And what does he say? He says, Tabitha, arise. Tabitha, arise, and she opens her eyes, and when she sees Peter, basically she resurrects. So he resurrects Tabitha. So keep in mind, you have Saul, who goes underground. In the meantime, Peter's raising people from the dead. Saul hasn't done that yet, but Peter's raising people from the dead. And I think that this is a beautiful story because that phrase, Tabitha, arise, it's strikingly similar, hang with me here, strikingly similar to Mark chapter 5. And in Mark chapter 5, Jesus comes upon a little girl and he says something strikingly similar. It's not Tabitha, arise, but Talitha, arise. Talitha, arise. Very similar. And the thing about that word, Talitha, arise, he's speaking Aramaic. And it says it, in the, even in the English, it, it transliterates saying, Talitha kum. Talitha kum. And when you hear Talitha kum, you know, if somebody gets sick, you want to come up to them and put your hand on them and say, Talitha kum. As if it's a magical incantation. Here's the thing. When Jesus says those words, Talitha kum, kum simply means get up. Talitha is a pet name for a little girl. It's like saying, sweetie, it's time to wake up. Little girl, it's time for uppy. And actually, the way that Jesus works in our life, we think that you're, he's going to come and he's going to do some magical, powerful incantation to change you. When in fact, many times what Jesus will do is sit on the side of your bed and say, little girl, it's time to get up. He'll sit down next to you and in a very common, simple way, say the words that will cut directly to the core of your being. Sweetie pie. It's time to get up. No more lying down. It's like um, there's a song uh, by Justin Timberlake. Uh, in the beginning, there's this deep Barry Manilow voice that says, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but it's something like, hey, little lady. <laughs> and I used to play that to wake my children up in the morning. And my daughter, she loved that. She says, hey, little lady. And she would squeal with delight. Jesus sits by the side of your bed and he says, child, it's time to get up. Nothing magical. And you know what? Here's the thing. Fast forward to the book of Acts. I think, I think my theory is that's what Peter had in mind when he said, Tabitha, arise. He saw it. He had been with Jesus for a long time. Friends, this is seasoned discipleship. Somebody who had been with Jesus for a long time and knows how to do this. And as a result, he was simply able to say, sweetheart, Tabitha, the Lord's not done with you yet. It's time to get up. Seasoned discipleship. Is that what God is saying to you today, friends? Sweetheart, son, get back up. You ain't done yet. 
Stand up. It's not rise. It's just, come on. It's time for uppy. And as you rise, I also want you not to forget that what we're talking about here is mature discipleship. Peter, having heard those words, Talithakum, repeats it. Tabitha, arise. Very similar words. Tabitha, arise. And Saul is getting what's coming to him. He's learning to be with the Lord. He's learning the maturity of years and years and time spent chiseling the rough edges and the undulations from his character, becoming more well-rounded. So, may you also, in your discipleship of the Lord, by the Lord, and hopefully hear it woven, if these are your silent years, like Saul, may it mature you, but also, may it also be a place where you, like, like Peter, can do your work of ministry. Amen. So, I know it's getting on in time. We'll do briefly, briefly, any questions that came up. Um, before we do the questions, just pause and take a deep breath. Get centered again. Lord, bring us back to you. You, Lord, are our strength. And maybe just do just a brief few questions. So, uh, any question that you want to pull up? There were some also remaining from last week. You can pull up on the screen. Some people. All right, why did Jesus tell some people to spread the word with what he had done but told others not to? So this came from last week. Why did Jesus tell some people to spread the word and why did he tell others not to? Um... My attempt to answer this question is that, quite simply, Jesus called some to follow, but he didn't call others. Uh, and the reason that he told others not to, um, I think what Jesus does for every single person, this relates to today's sermon, for every single one of you, when he calls you to follow, he ups the ante a little bit. So let's say that he says, come as you are, come and follow me, but... There is a cost. He ups the ante. Good discipleship is a process of Jesus upping the ante on us. So I think what he's done is he's put the call out for everybody to follow. But when he upped the ante, some people just couldn't take it. They said, well, I don't even want to play. I fold. I fold. Don't fold prematurely. Don't fold prematurely, guys. Because when he ups the ante, it's not just for his sake. It's for your sake. You'll become more than you ever thought you could be. So he ups the ante a little bit. I also think there's a dimension to this um, where Jesus deliberately told people not to say anything. Um, and this is something called the messianic secret. And I can't talk at length about this today, but you can ask me more about it in person. If you'd like to know why did Jesus hush demons and people and say, don't tell people who I am. The messianic secret, that's the messianic secret. And he does it, um, he does it, I think, because people weren't ready yet to hear who he was. He, what people were, yet, were not yet ready to hear exactly who Jesus was. And therefore, he would say, shh, don't tell anybody until the time is ripe. Until the time is ripe. So he was waiting for the time. So there's something, there's almost this, there's almost this thing about Jesus where he's conserving energy. 
instead of just kind of telling everybody and letting the, letting, you know, spilling out all of his guts on the floor, as it were, he's saying, hold on, hold back a little bit, hold back. They're not yet ready to hear. They're not yet ready to hear. Okay, we'll move on. Second question. Um, We answered this in Woven Group, so I'm going to move on from this question if that's okay. Was Paul, Paul married? Okay. Uh, no, he was not. Correct. I, I am willing to be corrected, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but Paul says somewhere that uh, I wish you were all single as I was. Am I correct? He says that. I wish you would all remain single as I, wa- if, as I am, uh, but if you're single, stay single. If you're married, remain married. So I do believe he was not married. Anything else? In Paul's time, there were Jews versus Gentiles. And Paul encouraged everyone to accept the Gentiles because the gospel was intended for all. Who are, oh, who are our modern-day Gentiles? What do you guys think? Who are the ones that are hard for us to accept? Who are the ones that are outcast among us? Um... You know, I, I think of the immigrants. I think of uh, this time and age, um, the, uh, the immigration dialogue has really been co-opted by politics, unfortunately. Um, we can wax political all we want and talk about how immigrants are good or not good. But in the end, we have a biblical mandate. And the biblical mandate, so the world can talk as harshly and at length, as much as they want. But the church, we actually have a different responsibility to speak peaceably on this issue. And I do believe that as Christians, um, the, Christian, the Christian message is founded on the Old Testament injunction to look out for the widows, look out for the alien, look out for the destitute among us. Now, whether that translates into you know, politics, that's not my concern. I think the mandate still stands to care for the widow, the orphan, and the alien among us. So that's one group that I think of. There are many. Um, in this day and age in postmodern society, pretty much everybody that doesn't go to church, I think, are the modern-day Gentiles. So um, I think the list can go on and on. But I'm going to leave it at that. I think that's something that, uh, that's a question I think we can all test ourselves on. Who is the Gentile, really, that I cannot? Who is the one to whom I need to cross the street and meet them more than halfway? This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org That's www.wovenchurch.org